Welcome to Unsalted, a podcast for people who work, live, and play on the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Allison Devereaux. Today we're talking about plastics in the Great Lakes. Our episode begins at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River. The last stretch of river flowing into Lake Erie. I'm here in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And the person defending the lake, floating in a kayak, is Eddie Olshansky. He's pulling out plastic bottles. We manned the last... uh six miles of the Cuyahoga River, what's known as the shipping channel here. And we just try to do our best to get every bit we can before it ends up in that lake. Everywhere I wanted to fish had plastic bottles and styrofoam and like, you know, even other fishermen's trash like lying around. It became more important to me than fishing. And uh, I started leaving the fishing poles at home, you know, and, and taking out just a trash grabber and a, and a bag. And it kind of spiraled from there. I quit my job and, you know, tried to start getting more and more people out there doing it with me. I bought a bunch of kayaks and because uh, like a lot of my friends, you know, didn't have kayaks or can't store them and can't transport them. And you get a free rental, basically. And uh, we paddle around, talk about the problems our river has, what we can do about it. And as long as you're willing to pick up some, a little bit of trash while we're out there, it's all free. So how did Eddie get here? Back in 2014, he broke his leg when he fell off a bike. Well, you know, when you start to get a little bit older and uh, you still pretend like you're 15, you spend all your time at the skate park, you're going to end up with some injuries. Yeah, like I said, it really put a damper on the way I used to enjoy the outdoors. And so I had to come up with a bunch of new hobbies. And this one sure seemed to stick. And what he's finding in the water varies, along with the conditions. Sometimes you don't have to move your kayak. You could just sit in the middle of the river and just let the trash flow right to you. You you could pick up four bags of trash in an hour without ever moving your kayak. And uh, on other days, maybe we're spending time just picking up the tiniest little broken pieces of plastic and tiny little bits of styrofoam and you know, whatever else we can find because there's not that many, you know, big plastic bottles and stuff. And most of that just depends on the weather. Like all of our trash basically comes from our sewers. Uh, A lot of people are like, how how are so many people just like tossing stuff in the river? And it's not, no one is standing at the riverbank throwing their bottles in the water or their, you know, we find all sorts of stuff down there. Like you wouldn't believe the amount of, you know, just like, like toiletries and stuff that, you know, just came from someone's bathroom, uh, uh, your plastic Q-tips and tooth flossers and stuff. Eddie and his volunteers have found some unexpected items, too. Uh, If you have uh, any younger listeners to the podcast, maybe they cover their ears, but we found quite a few uh, marital aids, adult toys. And again, sometimes, I I mean, I, I kind of assume that some of those things were flushed down a toilet, like, maybe an embarrassment or something. And so like, I, I, I can't really say how else they got down there in the river, but I have found uh, more than a couple. So they're getting there somehow. Are you talking think, about like a dildo? 
Yes, and uh, a couple of those AIDS. marital, marital AIDS. AIDS. Okay, continue. So we get some we we get some sex toys down in the river, and again, you know, a lot of condoms, a lot of tampon applicators, a lot of things that they're in your bathroom, you know, and like the 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 quickest way to get from a bathroom to the river is having something either accidentally or intentionally go down either your shower drain or the toilet or whatever it may be. So I can't prove that those things came through someone's residential toilet, but man, there, there's got to be a reason why I find so many in the river. He says that's the strangest thing that people respond to. But the weirdest discovery, the one that bothers him the most, is nurdles. I have a collection of probably twenty to 30,000 nurdles in my garage that I've collected. To find out more about these nurdles, I contacted an expert. My name is Patricia Corcoran. I like to consider myself an earth scientist. I am a professor and the chair of the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Western Ontario. And I am a sedimentary petrologist. It means studying sedimentary deposits, grains of all ages. Now, you might think of natural grains like quartz, but she also studies grains people have fabricated, like plastics. Now, that is a shift in thinking. Like most of us think about the most of us think about the grains on a beach. It's not it's not nurdles. It's not plastics. Yeah, but and that's funny that you say that because I have a lot of colleagues in my field who, when I started working on plastics pollution said the very same thing. Actually, some of them even said, I don't get it. I don't get what you mean or where you're going with this. And that was over a decade ago. Now there are a handful of sedimentologists or earth scientists who work on plastic pollution. Because if you think about it, a grain of plastic will be affected by the same processes as a regular natural grain of sediment, things like abrasion and weathering that work to break down the plastic, though plastic will never entirely leave the environment. Nurdles, as you call them, we call them plastic pellets, are considered microplastics as well. It's just that they're in the very large size range. And so they vary between three and five millimeters in size. They basically look a lot like a lentil. And they are used, they are the raw products that are used to be melted down and then molded into the larger plastic products that we're most familiar with, like ketchup bottles, for instance. And so we study both microplastics that are not visible to the naked eye, but also microplastics that you can see on a beach if you actually look for them. Now, I say that because I can go to Baxter Beach on in Sarnia or Cantera Beach in Sarnia and I will automatically be able to look down and find these pellets. Just the regular beach goer probably has not even noticed the pellets unless they're lying down on the towel and actually actively looking through the sand for these um, plastic particles. And so there are an abundance of plastic pellets in the Great Lakes. We recently undertook a study of all five Great Lakes, 66 beaches, and we sampled pellets over a span of two weeks in October of 2018. And what we did was we characterized every single pellet that we found. We found in total um, about 12,600 pellets. 
and what that ended up being was about 19 pellets per meter squared. Now that may not sound like a whole lot, but if you think about it, that's an average of all 66 beaches. Some beaches contained 700 pellets per meter squared, and that would be a beach in Sarnia. And so we were able to see where the pellets actually dominate in terms of these beaches across the Great Lakes. And there were three beaches that contained the greatest number of pellets compared to all other 63 beaches. One of them was Baxter Beach in Sarnia. One of them was a beach in Oakville near Toronto. And another was a beach called uh, Rossport on Lake Superior. And what's really interesting, so the Lake Huron Beach near Sarnia contained somewhere around 7,000 pellets over 10 meters squared. And as you may know, Sarnia is the location of many plastic pellet manufacturers. And so it's interesting how we find the greatest abundance of pellets near areas in which plastic is being manufactured um, there are a great number of plastic industries near the Oakville location as well in Lake Ontario. And so we were able to actually relate the proximity to industry with the greatest number of plastic pellets for Lakes Huron, Michigan, and Ontario. The interesting thing about Lake Superior is that there is no real plastic industry surrounding that lake. The other interesting thing is that the population levels are very low. And so generally, it's hard to parse out whether industry or population is responsible, except for the fact that people don't use pellets. And so we know it's probably associated with industry rather than the general public. Um, but for Lake Superior, it's different because in 2008, there was a rail car spill of pellets into the lake. And so these pellets are still circulating throughout that lake and being washed up upon beaches. And during a high water or storm event, what happens is that the waves will actually take those pellets back into the lake if they're not removed from the beach and just recirculate them throughout the whole lake. And we found that the majority of the pellets were found at Rossport, but the exact same pellets could be found on beaches all over Lake Superior. So we know that uh, surface water current patterns are greatly affecting the distribution of those pellets. And Lake Superior has a water residence time of about 190 years. So what that means is those pellets could be circulating through that lake for uh, another century, um, at least. So they don't necessarily have to be moving throughout the Great Lakes system. We just know that they're there. They're still there right now. And this happened in 2008. And so it was really interesting because we were able to determine what factors are controlling the distribution of these pellets. But the great outcome is that we are working currently with um, the plastics industry in Canada, as well as the not-for-profit uh, pollution probe, and also with the University of Toronto. Um, so uh, Western and, and Toronto are working together and we are actually trying to develop some policy in which companies can better regulate uh, where these pellets go. So if they end up on the factory floors, can we make sure that they don't end up going down the drains and making their way out into the Great Lakes? So this is a, a sort of a um, success story in that a scientist 
is able to come up with a conclusion, but that conclusion is actually used to make policy that is going to be positive. So I'm guessing that wildlife probably consume nurdles? There have been some some organisms that have been shown to consume um, pellets. There's, for example, seabirds. Now, if we think specifically of the Great Lakes, I can't offhand think of studies in which seabirds have ingested pellets, but seabirds have ingested pellets in other places throughout the world. There have been studies that show this. Um, fish also ingest pellets. So certainly there is the danger of our wildlife in the Great Lakes Basin ingesting the pellets. And if these pellets have persistent organic pollutants adsorbed to their surfaces, then those pollutants can travel up the food chain. They can go into the fish. And then if we eat the fish, they could potentially um, make their way into humans. But there are no studies that are showing that that is occurring yet. What we do know is that any kind of ingestion of plastic debris, if it is not egested and it remains in the organism, that it can affect things like feeding behavior, reproduction rates. So these organisms could severely be affected by ingesting any kind of plastic debris and not necessarily just pellets. And you mentioned um, some possible policy changes. What needs to be done to solve this? Well, what we're working on right now is a way to try and encourage companies that are part of the industry to install different measures within their factories uh, in order to stop the pellets from actually leaving the factories in, in the very beginning. Now, it's not just factories. We can't only set the blame on, on them. It's also that you lose pellets during transport. This is very common. So they're normally in Canada, or at least around the Great Lakes region, transported by rail or by truck. And oftentimes these pellets are so small and so lightweight that they, they escape. They uh, end up spilling and they make their way into storm drains and eventually can make their way into our bodies of water. So with all this plastic, people are rethinking what they own, how it's packaged and what they buy. I asked Patricia how her research impacts her own relationship to plastics. I believe that some plastic is extremely useful. I believe that the medical industry could not do without plastics. And we wouldn't either as, as individuals who actually go into the hospital and need something that is inert. Medicine has come so far because of the use of plastics. Um, there are some food stuffs that have to be contained within plastic. And just keeping something in plastic uh, increases its life, its shelf life substantially. And so again, we're looking at another big global problem and that is the waste of food. And so it's always a matter of weighing what's more important. So back to your question, when you say, how do I see plastic? I do see it in a certain way as being useful, but there are certain plastics that are absolutely not useful and I don't use anymore. Things like straws, plastic straws, um, plastic utensils. How easy is it for you to bring your own 
utensils made of stainless steel or how easy is, is it and how inexpensive really to buy a few stainless steel straws that you can reuse over and over and over again, which in the end is a lot less expensive than buying plastic straws over and over and over again. Which brings me to the art hanging on the wall behind Patricia, framing our Zoom call, these blue panels with big white flowers. Yep, they're daisies. Yep, so they their petals are white with white plastic debris and then the centers are a yellow plastic debris. And so some of the, the plastic debris, for I'm looking at it, that's why my voice is wavering, but I'm looking behind my shoulder. And some of the white plastic debris, for example, are bottle caps and cigar tips and um, a plastic spoon. And I, I find it's a little bit of an, an oxymoron in that I'm using something that's human made to portray a nature image. But I think also it's optimistic on the other hand in that I'm able to do that. And it gives me something to do with that plastic material. And so I just hope that this artwork <laughs> is actually lovely enough to be passed down once I'm gone, <laughs> because I certainly wouldn't want someone to then throw that away. And then the plastic would just enter into the trash stream once again. Before we wrapped up our call, I asked Patricia if there was one thing she wished everyone knew about plastics in the Great Lakes. The main thing was that I wish everyone knew that plastic debris is in the Great Lakes. I think that there are a lot of people who don't even realize this. I have been working on it, as I said, for over a decade. And <laughs> I don't know if my sister will like that I'm saying this, but uh, she contacted me about a year ago and sent me this link. Uh, talking about plastics in the Great Lakes. And I thought, geez, you really don't know what I've been doing all these years. And so I think the big thing is people need to realize that we do have a plastic pollution problem in the Great Lakes. I, there are the states, for example, that encircle the Great Lakes and the two provinces, Ontario and Quebec, because Quebec is part of that system where um, whatever's in the Great Lakes flows into the St. Lawrence River and then out into the ocean. And, and I think we're all aware of this issue, but the rest of the population in both of our countries are not really aware of, of the dangers or the threat in the Great Lakes. And the Great Lakes make up about 21% of the world's fresh water. We've got Lake Superior, which is the second largest lake in the world. These lakes are such an incredible resource. And the fact that we ha it already has, this system already has so many stressors, but now to add this relatively new um, threat to the health of the Great Lakes is just really unfortunate. So I think, I think that's kind of a general large scale answer to your question, but I really think just having people be aware that there is a plastics pollution issue is, is what's really important. And Eddie Olshansky, who we met back on the Cuyahoga River. He has a lot of time to think about garbage and the plastics he's seeing from his kayak. It all comes from the sewers, whether it was, you know, uh, put in a garbage can on the street that was overflowing and then it ends up in a storm drain or it was littered out of someone's car and it ends up in a storm drain or you did your absolute best to put it in the, the right bin, you cleaned it and sorted it, you did what was right, and then it blew off the truck as it was driving down the highway, taking your stuff to another community with a landfill in it. It almost doesn't matter what we try to do with our trash. 
it's going to go somewhere and do something that's not good. So the only way to get ahead of this is in the grocery stores. It's on your Amazon wish list. It's looking at the products that you buy and deciding either I need to find a better solution for this, a more sustainable product or something with better packaging or like whatever that hot topic thing might be. Or the better option is to just not buy it. If you don't need it, don't buy it because we have too much stuff in this world. Thank you for listening to this episode. To continue the conversation, you can find me on Instagram at unsaltedpod or email me anytime, unsaltedpod at gmail.com. I'm your host, Allison Devereaux. Talk to you next time.